This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Cool. Okay. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to this afternoon's continuation of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Uh, my name is Jesse Baring. I'm an American psychologist and, and a writer. I'm now based in New Zealand. Uh, and I suppose I've covered a, a fair bit of territory to what we'll be discussing uh, today, particularly uh, uh, when it comes to the overlap, uh, or in many cases, the complete absence of an overlap between uh, tricky issues of gender and sexuality. Um, so I'll be chairing this panel discussion, Gender Doesn't Matter, and you might have inferred um, an implicit parenthetical here, uh, or does it? Does gender matter? Uh, I think you'll probably agree that it maybe isn't quite that straightforward just to simply say that it doesn't matter, but that's something that we'll get into in just a moment, of course. So it's interesting to me, in fact, that the title of last night's um, remarkable speech uh, by Alicia Garza, and I, and I really do mean remarkable. I'm not somebody who's easily impressed um, or easily stirred up, uh, but I, I think that was the first time I actually was on my feet for a standing ovation uh, after that talk last night. So if you missed it, it was truly magical, and hopefully you'll be able to see it at some point. But her title, of course, was Black Lives Matter. Uh, and yet here we have Gender Doesn't Matter. So I guess I'll, I'll let you process that, um, that discordance uh, for a moment while I introduce uh, to you our, our three very talented, uh, knowledgeable panelists, each with uh, passionate, um, but more importantly, in my opinion, informed views uh, about gender, this rather volatile subject um, in contemporary society and, and, and historically as well. Uh, Raywin Cottle uh, is one of Australia's leading social scientists. She is best known internationally as a sociologist of gender and a pioneer of research on masculinities and best known in Australia for work on class inequality and social justice in education. She's the author or co-author of 23 books, very impressive, <laughs> uh, including Gender uh, in World Perspectives, Southern Theory, Masculinities, Schools and Social Justice, Gender and Power, Making the Difference, and Ruling Class, Ruling Culture. Her work has been translated into 18 languages, and she is a long-term participant in the labor movement uh, and peace movement, and is now Professor Emerita at the University of Sydney, so a local life member of the NTEU. In the middle, we have uh, Cordelia Fine. She's an associate professor at Melbourne Business School um, at the University of Melbourne. Her second popular science book, Delusions of Gender, uh, The Real Science of Sex Differences, was described as, quote, a welcome corrective by nature, uh, carefully researched and, and reasoned by science, and required reading for every neurobiology student, uh, if not every human being, we should add that. <laughs> Uh, that book was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award uh, for nonfiction, the Best Book of Ideas Prize in the UK, the John Llewellyn Rees Prize for Literature, and the International Cross-Genre Warwick Prize. Uh, and the New York Times advised readers to, quote, read this book. 
Uh, Cordelia also writes regularly for the popular press, including pieces in the, uh, in the Monthly, in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Financial Times, and her latest book, Testosterone Rex, uh, will be published in early <laughs> 2017. And finally, to my left, we have Elizabeth Riley. Um, She is a Sydney-based counselor, an academic, and clinical supervisor specializing in gender diversity. Uh, Elizabeth has extensive experiences working with gender-diverse clients and has a PhD titled, quote, The Needs of Gender-Variant Children and Their Parents. Elizabeth also has a master's degree in counseling and provides gender-specific support and counseling for children, youth, and their families. Elizabeth delivers professional development and gender diversity for schools, clinicians, uh, and other uh, service providers, and has 10 publications in the area of gender identity. As an advocate for the trans community, Elizabeth appears uh, for Mardi Gras, interviewing transgender uh, trailblazers, including Chaz Bono and Catherine McGregor. Her media presence includes Insight, 60 Minutes, The Current Affair, The Project, ABC's 7.30, Radio National, and Triple J. All right. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll just open up the, this, this conversation with a very simple question. Does gender matter? Um, and I'll, I'll let you guys answer that question. Uh, um, who would like to answer that question first? <laughs> it's, an, it's an open question. All right, well, I'll have a go. Um, I think, um, I mean, behind that question in a way is another question, should gender matter? And I'm very comfortable in saying, no, it shouldn't. I mean, we should live in a world where the gender you have or have constructed or where you are positioned doesn't affect you know, your chances in life doesn't expose you to violence or anything like this. Mm. Um, But if we're asking the question about reality, you know, does gender matter in the world we live in, the answer is unquestionably yes. Mm. Um, And it matters very strongly for for, for a wide range of, of people. Like, you know, if you think of them, probably the most powerful group of people in the world are the people who run the biggest, the f- you know, Fortune 500 uh, transnational corporations, the biggest economic organisations in the world. Um, now, we, we, we know who are running these. They're very conspicuous and powerful people. Their <coughs> operations affect our lives. Um, if gender didn't matter in reality, 50% of them would be women. Well, of course, what's the reality? Um, is it maybe 40%, is it maybe 20%? We're not even in the ballpark, it's 2.4% are women, which means to say that among the the most powerful, economically powerful group in the world, 97.6 are blokes. That's a totally masculinised, you know, uh, world, subculture, organisations. And it's that kind of fact, I think, that we need to grapple with when we think about the realities of gender. So, Ray, we, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, the, what we perceive to be the context in which the title for this panel came about, um, Gender Doesn't Matter, and that it was sort of a reactionary title to perhaps what's happening in um, contemporary media. Uh, so I just wondered if maybe you could just uh, touch on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. The, the, look, there's a lot of anxiety around gender issues. Um, 
as you see in media's preoccupation, but also distortions around the experience of, of transsexual men and women, for instance. Um, and uh, they're, you know, one of the themes of relatively hostile treatment of such issues in the media uh, is that, you know, people have made a transition or people who are uh, engaged in grappling with gender contradictions are making a great fuss about nothing. You know, it really doesn't matter. Uh, at all, we're you know we're all post-feminist now. We've we've all got equal opportunity and so mm -hmm. forth. So it's yeah. all just political correctness run mad. And yeah. I think that's a real, really you know, if we using that word dangerous, that's a dangerous misreading of the world we're actually in. Yeah, because like you know, it's a it's a loaded question that I pitched out to you because you've got you know there's there is the question, does gender matter, and then also should gender matter. Those are very different, actually, um, in the insinuations. Mm. Uh, what do you think, Cordia? Well, I mean, I uh, look at the full house here. I mean, I think if gender didn't matter, then it might be... No you know, one would come. ...someone's mum or something, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I... Um, yes, of course, gender matters, and as someone, as a psychologist, I'm interested in... Um, sort of focusing at the sort of psychological processes that help to give rise to the sort of larger kinds of inequalities that Raymond was sort of, uh, referring to. Um, so being in a business school setting, for instance, I'm interested in uh, how do we get this extraordinary level of inequality at the highest levels of leadership and power. And I think it make a mistake to sort of feel that extraordinary outcomes um, must have extraordinary causes. So we see just how gendered our society is in terms of who does what and who gets where, you know, which kinds of occupations men and women are in and how far up they get the up, uh, up ladders across all industries and sectors and, and realms of endeavour. And you kind of think there must be some uh, extraordinary, powerful, single cause of this. And we mm. think, well, it must be, you know, the, the chromosomes or testosterone or something like this. And I suppose psychologists have, you know, for many, many been, years been interested in, well, how does gender in terms of the stereotypes and norms, the expectations, how does that influence us both at the individual level in our, in, and in our interpersonal reaction, uh, interactions and, of course, at the level of organisations right. and society in a sort of more structured way? Okay. Mm. Elizabeth? Gender doesn't matter. Well, I wish it didn't, but unfortunately it seems that gender in all its forms, you know, when, whether we're thinking about gender roles, whether we're thinking about gender expression, whether we're thinking about gendered activities, you know, children, the boys go here, the girls go there, and the overlap between the ideas of gender and sex and, you know, people being so obsessed with wanting to know and understand that. I think is a real shame. As Raywin mentioned, you know, if there was a way to normalise it and not have that be an issue, I think that's, that's where we're wanting to be heading towards. Okay, good. So, actually, that's, that's a nice place to, to uh, sort of tease apart, perhaps, these interrelated constructs. And I think this is important for just everybody to be, to be speaking the same language. Because there are... Um, in my mind, at least, there are three factors that sort of are uh, oftentimes muddled uh, into one very confusing portrait when we're having these types of conversations. There's, um, there's gender, uh, there's biological sex, and there's orientation. 
Um, so I think it, it would be helpful perhaps to um, tease apart those three constructs uh, before advancing on to the rest of the conversation where we're focusing specifically on gender. I'll, I'll quickly give you just sort of a synopsis of my, uh, my view of the, the differences between those three. So for me, uh, gender is between the ears, uh, sex is in the chromosomes, and orientation is what makes you horny. Uh, they can, you know, they can come together in all sorts of fantastic and fascinating ways, especially from a sexologist's perspective. Um, but they are, and so they're not mutually exclusive, they're overlapping in many cases, but sometimes they're, they com they're completely orthogonal. Um, but they are, it is important to, to understand that these are three very different things that we're talking about. So this discussion is about gender, felt uh, gender, which is uh, between the ears. That's my view of things. Raywin, how do you feel? I'd, I'd add to that that gender is also out there in the world. It's to do with the way our, social, our society is organised um, and the way we relate, therefore, to you know, very large numbers of other people. Um, so if you start um, you know, mapping the, the various parts of our social life where gender differences, gender patterns, gender practices appear, uh, then you're looking, first of all, at the economy, as I've already mentioned. Uh, and Australia, I mean, we have equal opportunity laws, all right, and some kind of expectation that everyone has equal economic rights. Nevertheless, we have a massively gender-segregated workforce in this country, one of the most segregated workforces among the developed countries. Uh, we have major economic differences in terms of average income. Uh, I mean, we think, you know, th when you hear a report about the gender gap, oh, you know, 15% uh, difference maybe, or 7% or something, well, not very much. In fact, if you look at the actual income of women as a group and men as a group, women as a group have an, about 60% the income of men as a group. Um, and that hasn't been changing very much either. Um, so there are major economic patterns uh, in, in gender. Uh, there are issues about power, issues about vi interpersonal violence, issues about institutions, where people are located in institutions, how institutions work. So when I think about gender, I guess my first thought is how our social life is organised um, around the fact that we're, you know, a, a species that reproduces sexually. Mm -hmm. So we have male reproductive bodies and female reproductive bodies, but everything interesting about gender is how those bodies are incorporated into our social life, what kinds of distinctions and customs and practices we build around bodily difference. Okay. That's gender. Thank you. Cordelia? Yeah, I think I would just say also for me that gender is very much out there in addition to in there. And I suppose that's, um, for me, I suppose the interest is in how the sort of the biological sex in terms of reproductive systems, what the assumptions are and patterns and so on are around out there uh, um, are in a sense more predictable than what's, what's in here based on what reproductive system you happen to have. So, uh, uh, 
I guess so this, a lot of this discussion is, you know, the, the, perhaps the distinction between like a psychological scientist sort of approaching this and the sociological view of gender studies. And so, I, I mean, you know, gender is out there, and I would be completely on board with it, but it also, it's out there, but also emerges from minds. <laughs> Oh, yeah. uh, oh yes. And, yes, and society yeah. comes yeah. into so us. So these aren't mutually exclusive, no. uh, as well as our minds. Yeah. Right. Um, Elizabeth, how do you feel about these, well, these like, three? Okay, so a couple of things. Initially, often gender and sex are used interchangeably. Now, I think as our language, um, scholarly and media-wise, becomes more sophisticated and socially, I think there is the recognition that sex is the anatomy, the biology. Whereas gender is something different that's perhaps constructed or imposed or expected of people in one way or another. But I also want to mention that there's also intersex when we're talking about sex, and that often gets confused with ideas of gender difference. Mm. Whereas it, there's about 50 known intersex conditions, a couple of you know, pe ones people will have heard of, such as Turner's syndrome or Kleinfelder syndrome, and, and they're anatomical differences um, between people where there's uh, aspects of both the anatomy of what we would consider female and male organs. So that's, I guess, intersex and gender, as we talked about before. But then if we're talking about sexual orientation, there's also the misconception that people who are differently gendered in their expression or identity are perhaps gay or lesbian or bisexual. And it's very important to separate those concepts so that they're not overlapped. I mean, I often say for a, a whole number of my clients, I don't know their sexual preference. So it's a very different idea and a very different issue for is people. It, is it important to know? Is that for relevant? Some people, so for some people it is very important and for other people it isn't. And I think what's very important about people with differences in gender identity and expression is that they are as different from each other as we are from each other. There's this expectation that there's some kind of formula. Yeah. And um, I guess I just want to make it clear that you know, there's, there's no hom homogeneity there, just as there isn't with us. So why, why do you think there is that persistent misconception or this conflating of gender and at least sexual orientation? That wh why is that so difficult for people to get their heads around? Okay. Like for me, it's quite obvious what these differences are, but it doesn't seem like that's penetrating into the, the popular discourse. Okay, there's, about two, these there's two key things here. One is the LGBT acronym. So I think, you know, there's a lot of people who are differently gendered or, or different, have a different gender expression. They don't identify as queer. They don't see themselves as under that umbrella of LGBT, even mm. though we think about it that way. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that there is research that um, gay and lesbian people as children have gender variant behaviours. And, you know, that gender variance in the young LGBT and adult community, I think people will misinterpret that as being a difference in gender identity when it's often only a difference in gender expression. So I think. You know, that's when we get gender this, gender role, gender expression, oh, there, there gender are, behaviors. I, I remember writing about, um, this, was a, this was a technical term, actually, in the sexology literature, pre-homosexuals um, being much more likely to be gender variant, um, and that, that being sort of a, 
um, a predictive, a reasonably reliable predictive factor in sexual orientation in adulthood, what the degree of uh, gender variance in childhood. And um, that is what it is in some respects. I mean, there, it is oftentimes a fairly reliable indication of, or, or the likelihood of somebody growing up to have a same-sex uh, attraction. I guess I was I'm a gay man, but I guess I was androgynous in many ways, and um, so it's not surprising to me looking back at some of that and you know, looking at my, my the earliest um, birthday party celebrations and all my friends were girls. Uh, so, so, so it kind of makes, makes sense in many ways for me. So, so I think it's, it is, although these are separate constructs, there, there, is, there are interesting ways that they come together. I just have to say <laughs> that when you say that's a, reli a kind of reliable predictability, that we don't know. Some children who are gender variant may have uh, a difference in gender identity. They may not grow up to be gay. Or no, that certainly happens so we as need well. To be clear that, that certainly happens, yeah. um, and it's you know it's not a it's, it certainly doesn't apply to every gender variant child. Yes. Um, but I, you know I guess in terms of like aggregate statistics, uh, there is uh, some currency uh, to to those pre-homosexual... Okay, I uh, want to add place. in another gender here, gender dysphoria, and it's the yep. gender dysphoria that distinguishes between those children <clears throat> who will be perhaps gay or yes, lesbian absolutely. or, in fact, yep. will have a difference yep. in gender identity. Okay. Um, somebody mentioned the word queer. Who was that? Was that you? Yeah. Okay. So this is a question, I guess, and you can answer this question. Anybody can answer this question, but maybe, maybe Cordelia, I'm, I'm mostly interested in your response to this question of this... There's a, there's a language that's used in gender studies, sociology, that, in, in my view at least, um, looking at the sex research literature and you know, the psychological, uh, clinical psychology, um, empirical research in the field of sexology, words like queer just simply aren't there. And, and I guess the reason for that is that you can't, to me, even that word queer is, um, what does it mean? To me, it's like a completely amorphous, uh, non-veridical term that doesn't actually tap, map onto any, any actual reality. Uh, what is it? Can you operationalize it? <laughs> so, in other words, I guess my question is, like, where, there is a discrepancy, it seems to me, between disciplines and the language that they use. And my perspective, at least, is that the, the popular dis discourse has gravitated more toward the, the gender studies, sociology, um, identity formation uh, uh, work and has discarded largely the, uh, those that, that don't give a lot of mileage to just people sort of defining themselves in these elusive ways? Um, I think being in a field where we don't use terms like these, I'm probably, um, I'm probably the wrong person to answer yeah. this question. I might not, I'm probably not the right person to give the, uh, an informed informed dance on this. I mean, I think in terms of the popular discourse, the kinds of things that I look at um, is not the discourse that's, um, that you're referring to. It's mm -hmm. a sort of much more, uh, you know, go into the bookshop and go to the self-help book and it's, you know, why men need sex and women want love. Um, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. That's the kind of popular discourse, I suppose, yeah. that, I'm, that I'm very familiar with yeah. and really became interested in this topic because of reading a parenting book, like I'm one of these parents who 
likes to read about how to be a good parent. <laughs> Go away, I'm reading a book on how to be a better parent, don't disturb me now. Uh, and I became very disturbed about the way that neuroscience was being misused to kind of shore up old-fashioned gender stereotypes. Oh, look, neuroscience right. has shown that it's in the brain, it's innate, it's hardwired. Right. Um, so I've really been interested in how... Uh, it's actually, science itself has been inf influenced to some extent by these cultural assumptions about gender and, sex and differences yeah. between the sexes, but um, I'm probably not the right person to, yeah. to answer so I guess that question. I'm sorry. Maybe Raywin yeah. might have more insight into that, uh, or Elizabeth, but I guess you know, just to broaden that out a bit, the, I guess the language that is used about inherent or innate brain differences between males and females um, and what you, you know, sort of your gauge of what society thinks. Uh, versus the scientific facts. Maybe you can expound on that a bit. Yeah, well, so I, th I think um, the public isn't a sort of homogeneous group, and there's this huge... They're not? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, are you? Um, but I, I, th I Let's think... Let's speak about the lowest yeah. common denominator. Nobody <laughs> here, obviously. Oh, well, then you no. wouldn't be here. Um, the others. Yeah, I think there's okay. a sort of. I think we've. I think this discussion so far has already started to kind of unwrap just how complicated people are and how complicated uh, sex biology is and gender and identity and all these things. And but there's a very simple view, which is that you know you go from biological sex to a male or a female brain and then to a male or female psyche or um, or sort of gendered gendered nature. And so when you go to toy shops that have pink aisles and blue aisles, basically what that, that, that is saying is, um, look, depending on what reproductive system you're, you have, we, we know what kind of toys you want to right. play with. And, uh, you know, there are books for the business leader that say, you know, the way to increase the number of women in senior representation is to um, appreciate the unique qualities that women bring to the workplace that are complementary and different to the sort of qualities that men have, and we need both for a kind of match. So yeah, men are like this, and women are like that. And um, I think the sort of... Obviously, there's been, this has been a debate that we've been having for a very long time, and... Since the beginning of time. For, well, yeah, and... Um, and, and often I think the sort of critiques of those views have been seen as ignoring biology, you know, sort of recognising that, um, you know, different genetics, different but equal, different, hormones, different but equal yeah. so on and so forth. And, and I think there are sort of two interesting shifts recently in the sort of scientific literature and the scientific debate. So one is around uh, gender by which, in, the, in this case I'm referring to gender as uh, qualities that we ascribe as being masculine and feminine. So often the debate has been, well, are, are there differences? You know, are men more assertive than women or aren't they? And so a lot of the debate has been, well, how big are those differences? And point, drawing attention to the what is usually a great deal of overlap in the distributions of men and women. And it's been a, been a debate about, well, you know, some of the things are really important uh, in creating uh, gender inequalities, and these are things which men and women are more likely to be different on. So what, what values do you have? What, what mm. ambitions do you have? What passions do you have? What skills do you have? And we've really shifted, I think, over time from women are less smart to women have, uh, you know, particular kind of qualities sort of nurturing rather than national, rational thought, to now the debate is more about, well, they, they could do it, but they just don't want to. But, um, so one, one shift is there's been a, a change recently is 
pointing out that, you know, maybe all these differences are kind of small, but they add up. So there was, there was one researcher, for example, who said, look, it's like these, these criticisms that people make, the differences are small, everyone's overlapping, is a bit like saying that you measure different aspects of a car. So you look at a Volvo and a Corvette, this is the analogy that he used, and you look at the windscreen, you look at the brakes, and you look at the engine, and you look at the pedals, and I'm not going to say any more because I'll reveal my ignorance of cars in a very sort of gender stereotypical way. And it's like saying all of those differences in the car are quite small, and so really Volvos and Corvettes are pretty much the same. And, you know, that's crazy because we all know that Volvos are the nice, friendly car that's safe and lots of room for the groceries and the back and all the kids, and the Corvettes like the expensive, powerful status car, right? Um, but, but what's been changing, I think, is, uh, so a psychologist, Janet Spence, pointed this out, is that often there isn't strong correlations between different kind of masculine and feminine qualities. So being masculine in one kind of way doesn't necessarily particularly be masculine in another kind of way. And so these, these differences, there are average sex differences, differences between sexes, but they they don't add up in a kind of internally consistent way. So in a, for example, in a study published last year by uh, neuroscientist Daphne Joel and colleagues, they looked at the top 10 average differences between males and females from sort of three big databases. And what they found is that, you know, they were looking for the ones with the largest sex differences. But when I, when I refer to sex differences, I'm basing on, based on sex categories. And but they found that they tended not to add up in, in kind of consistent ways. So people had what they described as kind of fairly unique mosaics of masculine and feminine qualities. And I think if everyone thinks about themselves, that seems to make sense, right? M most people have a mix of feminine and masculine qualities, you know, put, put that in square quotes. Um, and, and those qualities are dynamic as well. They kind of change from context and, and through situations. And I think this is really interesting because it changes how we start to think about what causes uh, differences because when we start to, when we move away from thinking of masculinity and femininity as being kind of polar opposites on a single dimension which was the original assumption when people first started sort of doing psychometric testing of this you give people questions and if you answered in a masculine way you sort of gained a point and if you answered in a feminine point way you, you lost a point and it was assumed that everyone could be located along this sort of single dimension then in the 70s, Sandra Bem said, well, actually, no, maybe we have two dimensions. So there's masculinity and femininity. And so you can be, have both masculine and feminine qualities. And now it's, well, actually, it's very it's sort of multi-dimensional, right? And then it becomes much more complicated. This, this sort of nice story of chromosomes to hormones to brain to everyone can be located somewhere along these dimensions. It becomes a much more complicated thing to explain. Is it analogous to, I don't know, in, in, in terms of like, sexual orientation language, the, the Kinsey scale? Uh, is it? No, no. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, but the Kinsey scale is a very simple one-dimensional yeah. scale. And, and gender patterns are just not like that. I mean, the, the, there's been research on what psychologists have traditionally called sex differences for more than 100 years. And for more than 100 years, the main finding of it has been that there are not very big psychological differences between groups of men and groups of women or groups of boys and groups of girls. It's so much so that an argument developed that we should really call this field sex similarities research, not sex differences <laughs> research. And um, as the, the, the field has got more sophisticated techniques of, of statistical analysis, it's become clearer, I think, that, that those... That, 
in some circumstances, uh, you get bigger patterns of sex difference, and in other circumstances, you get stronger overlap and sex similarity. Again, using these categories of sex, very unsophisticated, many psychologists, I have to say. Um, <laughs> but um, the, what, what to me is intriguing is that these the, the circumstances are, you know, for instance, a change over time or different social classes or different racial groups or different nationalities, which is to say that the patterns of gender difference are shaped by the social circumstances people find themselves in and the pressures of the, you know, the whole social environment. Um, and that's, that's, in a way, the paradox, that gender matters tremendously, but not in the way it's conventionally believed to, with that mm. kind of direct transmission from mm. your hormones to your psyche to your social behaviour. It doesn't work mm. like that way, that at all. So, so this is, I would imagine you've, all of you have probably gotten um, pushback from people like me, evolutionary-minded uh, theorists and, and, and writers about um, research indicating, for instance, that um, there are toy preferences in incredibly young infants um, that haven't been exposed to gender constructs uh, in society, even in, in different primate species. They, there are studies indicating that there are innate um, uh, preferences for play styles, uh, you know, aggressive play, for instance, versus uh, um, symbolic play, relational play. Uh, how do you address that? Me, me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so me I... Me next. Enjoy <laughs> a former cue. Go for it. So I, I've, I've spent some time looking at those particular studies, and, and they are very important studies because they do seem to say, look, there's something sort of, to use your word, which I don't think is a very helpful one, innate, biological, natural, even before, mm -hmm. you know, babies come into the world. So just to talk very briefly about a couple of those studies which have really been very well publicised. So one was a study of newborns. So uh, they were less than a day old and they were presented with um, either the face of an experimenter or a sort of mashed-up mobile face. And, and what they were interested in was do girl newborns look longer at the face and boys at the, at the mobile? And the, the, the answer is yes, is what you would generally see in popular, popular studies. But I spent quite a lot of time uh, discussing this, uh, actually drawing on critiques others have made of it in, in the main, because one major issue is when you do this kind of research with babies, usually you, you, you make a lot of effort to, to, for a very controlled methodology. So you really need to make sure that the, there is an experimenter influence. So this is just a sort of basic methodological um, feature of psychological experiments. It's just try and make sure that your exper the experimenter, him or herself, is not influencing the participant. And in this particular experiment, you have someone coming in, a PhD student comes in, into a, a ward at a hospital, and you can probably imagine that there might be a few clues around as to whether the, boy, the baby mm. is a boy mm. or a girl. 
And, you know, with no aspersions at all that there might be some intention of deliberately affecting the results. I mean, the reason that, that experimenters try and control for this is because they're aware that these things can occur unconsciously and unintentionally. So, you know, if you're holding up a mobile or you're looking at a baby, there is a possibility that if you actually know yourself what sex the child is, that may influence your behaviour and then influence the child's behaviour. So that was a serious issue with that particular experiment. But if you set... set that's, I mean, that, that's, even if you put that's that aside, a legitimate concern, but yeah. that's, that's one study. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. And I, and, yes, and and it's not necessarily yeah. true that they, they were... I mean, it could have been a double... I don't know the particular experiment that you're talking about, but... Yeah, but so, so even if you set that concern aside, the methodological concern mm -hmm. aside, and I think if you're going to start making claims about males and females being sort of born differently, why one born to understand the world and the other to understand people, you probably want to have a decent... Method, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, before you sort of take it at face value, um, but we also but we also want to have a legitimate criticism and, and see and be able to tease apart those alternative hypotheses. And if it you know if it was a peer reviewed experiment and they actually did address the possibility sure, that sure. there were so these the, the confounds, actual, there was and that's a problem other, as well. Yeah, the other part of it was that there was actually a, even in the study there was a huge amount of overlap between the boys and the girls looking preferences. So I think, for example, for looking at the face, it was something like. Boys spent 49% of their looking time looking at the face, and girls spent 51% or something like that. So there was a very, they were statistically significant, but there was a lot of overlap. So it's not, you wouldn't describe the results in a dichotomous by boys like looking at mobiles, yeah. girls like looking yeah. at, and, and then five, another study that was done more recently with more rigorous method when children were about four or five months old found that boys and girls of that age both preferred to look at faces than objects and to a similar degree. Mm. So. To me, it's not... I, I don't have any sort of yeah. problem with the idea that that's a possibility. Though, of course, there's an assumption that what a baby looks at in the first few minutes or hours of life mm. sometimes somehow tells you like, how good they'll be at parenting or something like that. There's a whole sort of developmental pathway there that needs to be... Yeah. No, no, but I think it's a serious question. If you sort of think that that kind of self is sort of already mm. inscribed in there through before the baby's even... Or predispositions for behavioural yeah. styles that are not yeah. gendered in particular, but sort of yeah. become gendered and gendered as a consequence of the sort of the way. Yes, but I, I mean, I, as I say, I'm not. It's not that yeah. I object to that idea in principle, but I just I, I, no, don't, I, I, I don't. I, understand I don't that. find the data yeah. compelling. So the the, the 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 monkey data are also uh, interesting because. So there were two studies that one with vervet monkeys and one with uh, rhesus monkeys, and they found that there were. Um, sort of sex differences in what toys the, the monkeys like to play with. But mm -hmm. what I think what's interesting about those studies, and I do talk about these in my book as well, is that there's actually inconsistency across the vervet monkey study, the rhesus monkey study, and, and the sort of human children literature. So when you look at them in isolation, they seem to offer, oh yeah, look, there's sort right. of biological sex differences. But when you look at them together, they actually don't add up in a consistent way. So what was seen as a neutral, toy for babies and in one mm. monkey study was actually seen as the sort of feminine toy in another study and so yeah. on and so forth. So, Okay, so um, <laughs> that is related to, and there will be time for questions, by the way, that there will be, um, we've, we're, we've, got, we've got some time for that, but there were a couple of, I, I told them I would be throwing some um, curveballs uh, at them, some maybe a little bit more curved than others, but this is related, <laughs> I think, to that, that, this conversation, which is, is gender a human concept, construct, whatever we want to call it? Is gender something fundamental to human beings as a species from an evolutionary perspective? Would we expect to see anything analogous to what we, what we understand as gender and gender identity in other animals?
Can I just say that I don't think there's any way of, of separating it as, as a construct or as not, because we live in a community where there are expectations, where we do gender different ways of our world and how we see things, even colours. You know, the colour red used to be the colour for boys years ago, and now it's, it's blue for boys. So it's, it's something that the children from a very, well, from birth, live within this construct mm -hmm. of how we are. So, you know, we can't do the experiment of having a child outside that because we live in this total... Well, you could, hypothetically, but it wouldn't world. be really ethical, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Raise them in isolation like that. Yeah. So I don't know whether I answered your question, but, you know, I struggle when we know that there are so many aspects of gender that we impose. Well, I was thinking, I mean, obviously we see... Like, I, I, have, a, I have two dogs. I have a, boy, a male and a female. And I, I know that um, much of my attribution of... Uh, personality traits and uh, dispositions are just simply through the, my own biased cognitive perspective. The, the, the female is a daddy's girl. She's really shy, sort of in, in inhibited, and, and, and the boy is you know, really neurotic and just always wants to sort of play and, uh, and wrestle. Um, on the other hand, that is their behavioral <laughs> sort of profile. So not, I'm not using my particular dogs as sort of great uh, examples for this, but, but, but a lot of this, I, I guess my, what the question is, is how much of it is in our head when we think about animals and gender versus do they ever, I mean, is it possible to have a, um, a, a chimpanzee with gender dysphoria? Well, well, what I wanted to say in what you were saying then is we actually live in one huge aversion therapy. So when you have a child who's saying, you know, this doesn't make sense to me, why don't you treat me as I see myself, then they're working against all those constructs and all those oppressions around yeah. gender and gender expectations. So even in that, they're coming to the fore and speaking up. Right. So I just wanted to make that clear that, it, mm -hmm. you know, even with that... Well, I think gender is specifically human. I mean, the, the, the distinctive thing in evolutionary terms about humans is that we've created culture and institutions. I mean, we have, you know, cities, we have economies, we have power structures and so forth. And, you know, we, we have the geologists now talking about the Anthropocene, mm -hmm. you know, now that we've got the anxieties about climate change. But in fact... Evolution as a process began to be transformed about three million years ago when you began to get human social groups emerging. And once you began, well, hominid at any rate, uh, and accelerated really very fast again once you got anatomically modern humans some 50,000 years ago, thereabouts. But what's distinctive is our social structure. Uh, our capacity to mobilise workforces, our capacity to build cities, to create economies and technologies, uh, develop knowledge and so forth. And this is not something which is simply given by the characteristics of our body. This is something given by human cooperation. And it's at that level, I think, that we The allocation of roles, like gender roles for... Gender roles is part of it. I mean, one of the, the things you, that happens as society is formed, uh, you have to reproduce it. So yeah. you have to be concerned with how the population is reproducing itself over time. We have to have institutions that uh, organise the way we care for children, the way we, we you know, um, 
cre create parenthood, um, create kinship. Um, and these arrangements change over time. These are historical, not fixed by, by biology. And that's the pattern of change that now dominates in human life, yeah. that, that in fact now dominates the natural world, is, is human society. Um, so it's there, I think, that the real questions lie. Um, and, and I do think that the constant appeal to biology and biological difference, which is so pervasive a form of, a, you know, a, a pattern in, in popular culture, in media, and even in the thinking of, of researchers and accounts for a lot of the, the kind of research we've been talking about, which is very repetitive and... and um, you know, hasn't changed all that much over 100 years. Um, a lot of the reason for that is people's need to justify the social arrangements that they're familiar with and think that those social arrangements must have, you know, if God isn't justifying them, then evolution must. But in fact, they're historically constantly changing. So the gender division of labour, you know, what yeah. men and women do in society, that changes historically. You know, fairly fast. I'm really glad that you brought up God, yeah. actually. Because um, I'd like to do away with God if, if we possibly could in terms of having the, a meaningful conversation about, um, about sex and gender and, and, and orientation. Because to me, God is um, a problem. Uh, probably the biggest problem um, in advancing these conversations at, at a meaningful uh, activism level uh, in the absence of a sort of a morality-infused uh, logic that somehow talks about what God wanted you to be or how God designed you to be. Um, I think so many of these conversations would be a lot more straightforward and easier to, to understand. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I also think that Religion is cognitively the default stance for human beings, so that makes it much more complicated. But I guess you know one thing that we could talk about maybe is why why is this a moral question? You know, and I, I've actually even I've, I've just sort of uh, I, I think you know having conversations about sex differences, gender. Right now, I think the the, the sort of the the proper uh, the morally good approach to these types of questions is to look at similarities between males and females. Um, so moving toward uh, this conclusion, gender doesn't matter. There really aren't any meaningful uh, uh, qualitative differences between uh, the sexes. That's where we want to move progressively as a society. I get that. I mean, it, it, it makes sense because of the division of labor and social inequality. But on the other hand, what if, in fact, there really are? You know, are we are we moving too far into the uh, the sort of the equalizing uh, approach with empirical research that you know we're we're not acknowledging possible differences? Why is it a bad thing if there are differences? Uh, I, this reminds me of some of the the uh, the work that I did with chimpanzees, uh, and the big question with chimpanzees uh, and comparing chimpanzees with human beings was, you know, the things that made the National Choir the BBC, the stories that people wanted to hear about was basically just how similar are chimpanzees to, hum to human beings. Uh, how smart are they? They're smart, they're very smart, 
but there are also meaningful differences between chimpanzees and human beings. Um, and I just, I guess I see something similar to that just in the, the social dynamic with these conversations, that somehow it becomes uh, a moralistic conversation to even, you know, investigate the possibility uh, of sex differences or uh, sort of evolutionary questions or, or innateness. Uh, I don't know, what do you think? I just oh. wanted to jump in there very quickly and say, I think what we don't want to be stifling is creativity mm -hmm. and opportunities that people can have and stifling people's potential, irrespective of their gender. And I think we're only just touching on the edge of the fact and what you were saying about, you know, there, there's more similarities than difference. Can we look at what people's potential is and go yeah. with that and yeah. get away from whether it's influenced by gender? Yeah, I suppose from, from my point of view, I, I, given the work that I do, I don't, I don't perceive that there's a lack of interest in looking for sex differences. I mean, I wrote Delusions of Gender because I began to, first of all, was worried, concerned with how the popular writers were misconstruing the data themselves, but then I became interested in the neuroimaging itself, and, and I became interested in how, what are probably implicit assumptions about gender, you know, that, that you know, that men are like this, that women are like mm. that, um, that rather than seeing gender or sex differences as being, as Raymond was saying, contingent, historical, um, varying across time, place and culture, seeing them sort of fixed essential qualities. And that was influencing what research questions were asked, what yeah. assumptions were made, what conclusions, what sort of speculations were made. So, for example, if you do a study where you simply compare a bunch of men and a bunch of women, you get them to do a task, you do a brain imaging study, and you find some statistical differences in the brain activity, which, by the way, you, you will tend to find even if you take a small bunch of people chosen randomly because there's just a huge amount of noise in uh, brain data um, and lots of degrees of freedom and how you analyse it. Um, and you find some sort of difference and then you say, well, maybe this is because women are more emotional, for example. What you're guaranteeing, if that's the end of your study, is that you will not find any data that can challenge the idea that those differences are not fixed, universal, generalizable. So if you don't then use it as a starting point, okay, well, if we look at these groups of people or we put them in this different social context where we know from social psychology actually men and women's behavior becomes more similar, or actually may, let's not use this crude measure of what genitals people actually have, but let's, what are we actually interested in? Is it empathy? Is it spatial skills? And let's divide up our group that way rather than this very, very crude proxy of sex. Yeah. And then we can actually start to do better science and more uh, mm -hmm. interesting science yeah. and... Um, yeah, I, I, science, I, so. I, I completely agree. There's absolutely no lack of interest in investigating yeah. sex differences in science, but I think that that's a, it's a different conversation that's happening in the rest of the world that isn't necessarily, you know... I think that they see oftentimes any investigation of sex differences as somehow being um, misogynistic or, uh, or wrong in some sort of moralistic sense. So that's, that's where I guess I yeah. struggle a little bit to sort of to keep the two... Yeah. I, I think it's important to recognise that researchers are people too, mm. and gendered people. That was a horrible <clears> shock <throat> to me, I have to say. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but researchers often have an investment in a particular construction of problems. Uh, I'm, I think um, the, the whole field of sex difference research is a very good illustration of that. <coughs> because many of the results of it have not changed. Uh, and yet, an enormous amount of research continues 
uh, to come out. Why? I mean, why are people spending so much time on this kind of question? And I think it has a lot to do with the investment that the society and the culture, as well as people as individuals, have in a particular view of gender and, you know, the justifications for the world that they're, that they're in. Um, I would much rather see um, research energy uh, being invested in questions of social change, um, investigations of how we actually produce more peaceable behaviour, reduce levels of domestic violence. These are all gender phenomena, how we prevent patterns of rape, how we reduce the incidence of toxic masculinities. These are really worthwhile research questions and that's where I would like to see the energy go. Mm. Thank you. Can I just... Yeah, we, I do want to... I wanna, we have 10 minutes, so I do want to okay. give the, uh, the floor to the audience. But okay. absolutely. Yeah. One quick point, just um, piggybacking on what Raven was saying, is that today, between four and five, people who express themselves differently in gender expression are murdered. So that's around the world per, de, per week, four to five people are murdered. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yes, thank you. Um, okay. I can't see. From is there somebody at one? <laughs> or is that a ghost? It's a ghost. <laughs> yeah, just walk up to the mic and... Yes? I just wanted to ask, um, I guess it's a double-barrelled question, how do you feel we will get to a point where gender doesn't matter? How will we see that unfold in society? Will we see it through um, changing the media that we... Um, that we take in, and also what can we do here at a grass level, grassroots level to try and change things in our lives with the people around us? Okay. Yeah, well, I'd recommend social revolution, I think. <laughs> um, um, that is to say, I don't think that... Um, gender will cease to matter at the level of personal life until the stakes in your gender practice or your gender position uh, differ among different social groups, among different gendered groups. Um, so, um, you know, f for me, you know, questions like economic equality, struggling for wage justice, uh, struggling to reduce the... Uh, the differences in income and privileges between different groups of workers, that's really quite important in, in shifting consciousness about these, these issues. And, of course, as, as I was mentioning before, um, changing patterns of violence, contesting prevention of gender-based violence seems to me an absolutely crucial move to change the way in which people experience their bodies and their position in the world. Um, I'm thinking that if we listen to children, give children the skills and awareness around differences in um, sexism and racism and, and listen to their voice, I think that we can make change if we start young and listen to what they're saying. Yeah. Number two. 
Hi, I'd like to answer the question for question number one. <laughs> um, I work in early childhood. I've spent a lot of time with babies and young children um, in the community and in the hospital. And I have noticed, and I think anecdotally, it's been proved that there's very little difference between the parenting capacities of men and women. Um, I've encouraged men into the service. I was on a committee encouraging men um, to engage with the service because women for many, many years have been seen the gatekeepers of parenting. You know, very much they say, oh, I'll show you how to do it, you know, and the men go, all right then. But, um, so, and I think the studies have also said that in relation to engaging with babies, oxytocin levels, that whole bonding thing, happens with men as much as it happens with women. So I'm a great advocate that men have all the capacities of women to parent children. And in the hospital, I observe that a lot of the time when people have to stay overnight with children. It's often the men that have to do it for practical reasons. So I guess in answer to the first person's question, you know, right from the start, encouraging parents, whether they be gay, whether they be lesbian, whether they be you know, a mixed um, homosexual relationship, whatever the relationship, to engage with babies and to engage in children and bring out our humanity, which is very common. So I guess that's not quite a question, but... Um... <laughs> Thank you for answering uh, um, that. that yeah, yeah. <laughs> Moving on, we've, we've actually got a... We'll take number one. Yeah, hello. Um, thanks for the talks, they were great. Um, so my question kind of wants to kind of expand the question of how gender matters and I think that it's important to discuss kind of the differences between genders and how that affects us personally. Um, but also, I mean, I'm intersectional in all of the activism that I do and all of the theorising that I do. And I think it's important to look at how gender influences things like race and sexuality and all kinds of other things like that. Um, I have a specific, specific question with regards to that, and it's with regards to um, the issue of animals and treatment of animals in our society. Um, there's a book by Carol J. Adams called The Sexual Politics of Meat, which is, I think, about 20 years old now. Um, in that, she discusses the ways in which um, masculinity informs the way um, we relate to animals and uh, meat consumption. Um, like ideas of like real men eat meat, which kind of reinforces this toxic masculine view that to be a man you have to consume these animals and you have to dominate animals. Um, and as well, kind of the way like in um, animal agriculture, how female bodies and reproductive systems are objectified and commodified and abused um, in ways which um, can you can draw comparisons to the way that women are treated in society as well. Okay, so that's a great point. Do, do you have... Yeah, uh, yeah, I was just going to... And just one last thing about um, patriarchy as well, how that creates the binaries, like male and female, and um, like human and animal. And I was kind of just wanting to get the views of the panel, really, and what your views are with respect to that and how you believe gender kind of intersects with these issues of um, animal rights, I guess. Thanks. There's a curveball for you. I'm, I'm sure many people here will remember that wonderful advertising campaign by the meat industry in New South Wales, Feed the Man Meat, um, and uh, expressing contempt for rabbit food and so forth. Um, yeah, there, there are um, inter, interconnections between our, our gender order and the way our society does treat animals. It's not about, I think, men or masculinity as such, but particular constructions of masculinity as dominant. 
and particular understandings of food too, the gender symbolism that, that's attached to different forms of food. But the connection is certainly there. It's a great point. I mean, food consumption has definitely engendered uh, the types of food that we eat, sort of we see implicitly as being a male type of food or a female type of food. And that's a great point, actually. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so I wonder if any of you have a view, and we obviously live in you know, a liberal society and lucky enough to do so. Uh, do you have any views on the current framework, legal framework, uh, governing framework, the institutions that we have in place, do you believe? Uh, are there hindrance? Uh, are, they, are, they, are they helping this, having this conversation right now? Uh, and do you believe that these bodies and institutions should be doing more? to challenge presumptive norms? Should they take a step back? Uh, and what, what bodies or institutions are you... I'm right? talking about, like, for, for, for just the, the legal framework itself, because I come from, I, uh, from a legal background. Mm -hmm. So that's generally my point of view for, for most of these, uh, these matters. So do you think the law gets in the way of equality between men and women? Do you, or do you think the law is able to be used in a manner that promotes equality between men and women, or do you think it's not relevant at all? I think that obviously equal opportunity legislation is a friend rather than an enemy, but, um, but of course it, it's, there's the law and then there's the actual practice. Um, I, think, I think generally with all these kinds of issues, um, Something about, you know, I mentioned before this idea that, that inequality arises because it's so striking, you feel like it must have some very big cause, but it's just lots and lots and lots of little things, and if we don't sweat the small stuff and the big stuff will never change. And um, that, that's why it's concerning to me that, you know, we sort of have this gender fatigue, and so people who say, no, hang on, well, this is sexist, or what about this, or maybe we could do it this way, or maybe we shouldn't have, you know, can't we get a woman for this panel? This kind of, oh, cries of political correctness. It's, you know, everyone's gone mad, everyone's too sensitive. And I think there are um, questions always around, uh, um, to, you know, where can we both, where can we best put our energies, where can we best put our efforts, and where is regulation appropriate, and where is it inappropriate, or um, conflicting with other kinds of values that we have, or just inappropriate, or everyone just going to get people's backs up and be counterproductive. Um, yeah. And I think those, you just have to think about those in front, on a case-by-case. On a case. I, I mean, I, I think as a yeah. science, I mean, I, I think we need a militant middle, basically. I think that, you know, we don't want to be too sensitive, we don't want to be too insensitive, we want to be just the right sort of science-minded <laughs> Yeah, we don't sit sensitive. on the fence, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we're out of time. Uh, I know that there are a couple of questions still in the audience. Uh, uh, Ray Wynn and Cordelia, I believe, will be signing books uh, out in the foyer. So you can uh, reserve your questions for them there. Um, uh, otherwise, um, you'll probably see us around, floating around. Uh, um, I don't want to speak on your behalf, but I'm sure you, you would welcome further conversation as well. But please join me in giving a, a round of applause to our panelists. And thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.